Last month, uh, my friend Bobby Pepiot, many of you know Bobby, he's our church administrator, he was telling me about this new thing that he had purchased called a smokeless fire pit. I thought, well, that sounds pretty amazing. I've heard about these things before and was a little bit jealous. We had had an old fire pit in our backyard for a while, and we always did complain about all the smoke that it produced. So I was intrigued by Bobby's smokeless fire pit. So Lisa mentioned to me that she had noticed they were on sale, so we purchased a fire pit a couple of weeks ago that did not produce smoke. I tried it out last weekend, and it never crossed my mind you had to read directions for a fire pit. I just built a fire, assuming somehow there wouldn't be any smoke in the fire, and it would be magic. Fifteen minutes later, I sent a video to Bobby of my fire pit filling our neighborhood with smoke. I texted and said, have I fallen for the biggest scam ever? There's no such thing as fire without smoke. How did I fall for this and why did I purchase this? Well, the next night, Bobby showed up, arrived. Turns out that contraption actually does work if you follow the directions correctly. It's really kind of neat. You can put wood in there and there's no smoke. It produces heat and you can really enjoy the thing. What I thought was kind of a joke What I thought was kind of useless, what I thought had no real point at all, actually turned out to be powerful and a lot of fun, if I understood it and used it correctly. Our passage this morning is critical for us if we want to understand our lives in Christ correctly. You see, if you want to live with power, if you want to live with enjoyment, if you want to live with engagement and with purpose— Well, you know what? The Bible has really, really good news for you. Our lives are designed to be lived in such a way. We are going to see that part of the honor that we have as being a follower of Jesus Christ is that we are engaged in his work here on this earth. And when his purpose becomes our purpose, it will affect our lives with incredible power and engagement. So, as Will mentioned, we are starting a new sermon series this morning. For the next six weeks or so, we are going to uh, consider the applications and implications of the reality that Jesus has indeed conquered death. So in the spirit that we are people of Easter and that this message continues on and on, I want us to consider the realities of a resurrection life. Today we will see that even though we may feel unworthy, we are people of power and we are people of purpose all because of the finished work of Christ. So before we get into the text, let me simply ask, do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you believe and feel that you are important, that God has a plan for you, that he has designed for you to be engaged in his work? When we pray in the Lord's Prayer for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done, you, Christian, are involved in that. You are a player in all that is taking place as God's kingdom comes from heaven to earth. I hope this morning that God will awaken this awe by reminding us of how he sees us today. So, return to the Gospel of John. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. And let's see what Jesus did to reveal our very valuable place inside of his kingdom. So, two points for us this morning as we examine this encounter that Jesus had with his disciples. First, notice the humbled leaders, and then secondly, notice 
the exalted task. So humbled leaders, exalted task. And, and may the risen Lord Jesus motivate us to live in his power today. First, notice these humbled leaders. Look back at verse 19 and notice the scene that is taking place here. It's the evening of the first day of the week. That would have been in Jesus' day on Sunday night. Jesus arose earlier that morning. He appeared to the two women named Mary. We saw that last week in our passage. Outside near the tomb, the empty tomb. Jesus instructed those women to find his disciples, his brothers, his family, and tell them to meet him in Galilee. That has now happened, and Jesus will reveal himself in just a moment. At this point, the disciples did not know that Jesus was alive. Technology was not so advanced in that day that they would have heard. The disciples were gathered together in some location which allowed them to be hidden. And note, for the door to be locked. Remember that important detail. They're locked in a room. There were 10 disciples present during that time. Perhaps some of their friends joined them as well, but at least 10 of the original disciples were there. Of course, there were 12 to begin with. After betraying Jesus, Judas Iscariot died in the aftermath. And then in verse 24, if you read on, you see that Thomas was not with them. In some way, Thomas apparently had given up on everything, and he had just hoped to move on with his life. So there are now 10 who remained, crowded together in a room with the doors locked. Why were they huddled in there together? What was going on? Verse 19 says, they were afraid. Specifically, they were afraid of the Jews, afraid of the people who had wanted Jesus to die. The disciples had to assume that those same Jewish leaders were now coming for them. They had been there with Jesus all along. They knew him. They recognized their faces. Now they were coming for them. Remember, it was always the Jewish fundamentalists who were Jesus' most fierce enemies. The Pharisees constantly challenged him because they did not think they needed a Savior. They thought they were righteous in and of themselves because of all of their religious effort. And they were prideful about their ability. And Jesus and his call for repentance was against everything they believed. And they wanted nothing to do with Jesus or any of his followers. They hated him. The Jewish leaders wanted him dead. And guess what? For a moment, they got their wish. They had convinced the Roman authorities to kill Jesus. So therefore, on that Friday, and all of Saturday, and part of the day on Sunday, they had to be feeling really good about themselves. For most of that weekend, they had to have assumed they won. They executed their enemy. The Pharisees always thought they were right about everything, and now it was their time to gloat. So back in this locked room, these uh, ten disciples knew all of this, and they understood what was going on all around them. They had seen and heard it all. The anger of the enemies and toward Jesus was now coming for them. And now that Jesus was gone, their minds surely assumed these same people are coming for them. So there they were, 10 men who had been with Jesus for everything, huddled together, scared of the enemies, and I'm sure wondering, what's going to happen 
to us. Perhaps plotting and strategizing, hoping to simply stay alive. This this scene does kind of beg the question that we considered last week with the women at the tomb. Did the disciples simply not remember what Jesus had said? When he said that he was going to rise again, had they forgotten that or were they just confused? Yet considered, here they are huddled behind these closed doors and accept this of their fate. They were a humbled group of people. There they were, Andrew, James, John, the gospel writer who penned these words, Bartholomew, Matthew, another gospel writer, James, Simon, the other Judas, and of course, everyone's favorite, Peter was in that room. I wonder what he had to say now. He was always full of bright ideas. Perhaps he had something to share. The one who boasted that he would be with Jesus no matter what, but then denied him publicly when a small child recognized him. What was going through his mind in that room? Imagine those guys debating different options of what to do next. I'm sure just hoping to survive, probably hoping that maybe they could get their old jobs back and get back to the life they had had three years prior. Certainly they were wondering, what in the world had they experienced for the past three years? I can just imagine one of them thinking out loud, we did see him multiply fish and loaves, didn't we? Like, we're not making that up. We really did see people be healed. We did see demons flee, right? Like, we saw that. Yet there they were, doors locked, afraid, unsure of the future, confused, Perhaps even in prayer, perhaps not, John doesn't tell us. But if we could, just pause for a moment and imagine that room. Can you relate to those guys a bit? I can. You know, I've seen God provide in the past in so many ways. But then when there's a new issue coming forward, it's real easy to forget everything that he's ever done in the past. I can relate to them. You see, these are humbled people. They're desperate. They're living by faith. They literally don't know what to do next. Now, look back at the back half of verse 19, and let's see and hear from our Savior again this week, and let this miracle of Jesus grab your attention, grab your heart, and let him motivate your faith this morning. Scholars attempt to explain what happened in that room at this moment, but the best explanation is really just to accept what Jesus described here, and what John described here about Jesus as he recorded it. Jesus, in a physical body, came into the room that had doors locked. Let me say that again. Jesus, in a physical body, came into a room which had their doors locked. Again, John was there that night. He experienced all of this, and years later, he recorded There was a reason he included that the doors were locked. He wanted us to recognize what happened here. Jesus had been inside the tomb earlier that morning. He walked out of the tomb. He spoke to Mary and Mary, and now standing in a room behind a locked door, looking at his brothers. Did he just walk through the door? Maybe. He walked on water, so it's possible. Did he miraculously open the door? Maybe. Doesn't sound too difficult for him. Regardless, 
The locked door did not stop him from getting to the people he loved. Recognize what happened here. The guys hiding are instantly in the presence of the risen Jesus. He's just there. Their heart surely beating out of their chest. Yet there he was looking at them. The shock must have been incredible. Was it a ghost? Was it a dream? Was it a nightmare? What was Peter thinking now? I suspect their fear just quadrupled. And as we suspect, Jesus' first words to his friends were heavenly. Standing there, appearing in their midst, being risen from the grave less than 24 hours, what do you suppose he said to his friends? Was he going to shame them? Was he going to condemn them? No chance. Rather, he gives this deeply intimate and theologically rich statement. He says, peace be with you. This was more than just a simple greeting, like the one we saw last week at the tomb. This word, shalom, it was meant to communicate the reality that you, my friends, now have peace with God. He looked at his brothers and he offered them the peace of God. The greatest statement a person could ever receive is that there is no animosity of God to you. This was not casual, this was not flippant, but it was deeply intimate and it was full of grace. These are Jesus' words to his people. You have peace. You see, now was the time that Jesus' reading to give shalom was appropriate. Something had to happen first. If you have your Bible still open, turn forward to the book of Romans. Turn to Romans chapter 4. And notice the end of this chapter, and then Romans chapter 5, verse 1, a passage that many of us know and love. And hear what had to take place for this peace to occur. Romans chapter 4, verse 23. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What Jesus basically was doing when he looked at his brothers in that room where they were hiding, he looked at them and essentially said this. Guys, I did it. I told you what had to be done. God's wrath against sin, it had to be taken, and it was. It's over. It was all put upon me. I did it. Thus, you now have God's peace. He's not angry with you over your sin. You have his peace inside of you, and your relationship with him is now one of peace. You did not earn this. It was given to you because I did it. Jesus showed them then his hands. He showed them his side. He wanted them to know, this really is me, your friend. John recorded, and I love this. They were glad when they saw the Lord. Oh, I bet they were. They weren't crazy. 
The past three years had not been a dream. All that they had built their lives and their hope upon, it was real. You see, these disciples, like us, can't keep the risen Jesus locked out from his people. Get this this morning. There is no door locked from the outside or the inside which would block Jesus from getting to the people he loves. These men, like us, are loved by our Father because Jesus came for us. They were not special in and of themselves. They were special because Jesus died and rose from them. Friends, this is our story. Please know this morning, if you have trusted in Christ, God is not mad at you. His peace is for you. That's our story. Now, notice the transition that happens in our passage. We've seen these humbled leaders, but now notice this task that they are giving to. Notice what Jesus commissions them to do, the exalted task. Look at verse 21. So here they are, these 10 guys, just hoping to stay alive. Now Jesus is with them, and now he blesses them with an incredible responsibility. In verse 21, you see this responsibility is so important, all the members of the Holy Trinity are involved in bestowing the task. Note, the Father sent Jesus, Jesus speaks to his friends, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. This is seen in this room, a foretaste of the looming day of Pentecost, which will be coming in a few weeks. The followers of Jesus are so now special, the entirety of the Godhead is engaged in their calling. And Jesus does something here which was unique. He breathed upon them. That's a sign of how the Spirit works. It's mysterious. It moves as it will. The point, though, was the result in these common men who now have God's Spirit inside of them. With this Spirit, they no longer needed to be afraid of what was outside of those doors. They could unlock the door, and whatever their fate may be, they did not have to live in fear. No, now they were to be confident. Now they could walk right outside into the middle of danger, now equipped to do something. And fear would not define them. And church, it doesn't define us as well because of the spirit inside of us. But notice what their task was. Verse 23 sounds kind of unusual, very much so in our modern language. Jesus basically tells them something related to, you've got the power to deal with other people's sin. Now, the rest of the New Testament will help us explain what that means, and we're not going to get into that right now. But here's what their task was. Their task was to announce. Their task was to live. Their task was to believe. And their task was to represent the fact that there is forgiveness of sin because of what their friend had just done. In confidence, their lives were now about a story. In confidence, their lives were now about the story of Jesus, about his life, about his death, and about him conquering death. Their lives were now about their friend who came for the forgiveness of sin. You see, this is the Great Commission as recorded by the Gospel of John. And to see this correctly will affect you today. If I could offer one word of application this morning, it is this. Do you see yourself as Jesus' ambassador? Because that's how he sees you. To be an ambassador is an incredible privilege. We are representing the king in all that we do. 
If you want your life to be filled with purpose, of enjoyment, of fulfillment, then embrace your role. You represent the king. Do you see how important you are? Yes, we are weak. Yes, our bodies fail. Yes, we make mistakes. But hold on. You're not that weak. There's more going on with our bodies than we realize. And even in our mistakes, we are constantly representing Jesus into this world. We represent Jesus to the entirety of the world, what he has done. In your life as a student, in your life as a physician, a parent, a teacher, a first responder, whatever you are, if you see yourself as Christ's ambassador, there's deep and rich meaning. You see, we demonstrate, we proclaim, we announce Jesus rose from the dead. This is how the world hears the story. What you do tomorrow matters greatly, and how you do it matters, because you're revealing the story of Jesus that he's alive. Do you believe that? Do you see yourself that way? You see, tomorrow you could handle bad news, because you're representing Jesus. Tomorrow you could handle a difficult circumstance, because you're you're representing Jesus. Tomorrow you could have your heart broken, because you're representing Jesus. Jesus. Tomorrow you could have a really good outcome to your day at work because you're representing Jesus. Why? Because your life is now about this story of his. It's who we are. Your task in life is to go into whatever pocket of the world the Lord places you and in the power of Jesus' spirit you represent him. Friends, God loves you so much he has made you his ambassador to the world. You will not find ultimate true happiness in life apart from identifying who you are in him. You will be able to explain all of life as you embrace your true calling. You're an ambassador of Christ. This is our honor. You represent the king. Jim Senegal is a well-known name in the business world. 1983, he started a little store named Costco. He turned his store into one of the most successful retail stores in the world. They even sell smokeless fire pits. He has a great statement about his success in business. He said, when employees are happy, they are your best ambassadors. Let me say that again. When employees are happy, they are your best ambassadors. That is, when those who represent the leader are happy, the fame and success of the leader will grow. Church, may our true happiness be found in this truth. Jesus rose from the dead and our sins are gone. When that is our life, when his story is our heartbeat, then his story is going to be known throughout this world. This is our life. Jesus is alive. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and I will transition us to the Lord's Prayer and then to the table in front of us. The Lord, we thank you, indeed, Jesus, that you are alive. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that nothing can block you from coming to us. God, we thank you that your love for us is way greater than any love that we would have for you. So, Lord, I pray that in the power 
of your resurrection, we would go forth. So, oh God, we pray now as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 